Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, April 28th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Dr. Katie Rizvani of MD Anderson Cancer Center joins us to explain the massive potential of a new approach to treating Wiley tumors. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including the pediatric COVID vaccine saga and biotech's prolonged decline. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Gregory Rippon, Vice President and Chief Medical Partner at Genentech. Greg, how important is the role of early detection and treatment in neurological conditions? Thanks, Angus. Across neurodegenerative disorders, the earlier patients and providers are able to intervene in the disease process, the more we can potentially do to slow progression and prevent further neuronal damage. At Genentech, we are studying medicines in the earliest stages of diseases, like Alzheimer and Huntington disease and MS. Lessons learned from studying one disorder can be applied to others. For example, as we have come to better understand the progressive neurodegenerative process in MS, we are able to leverage what we have learned in our work on Alzheimer, Parkinson, and other neurodegenerative diseases in our MS research. We are also exploring innovative solutions, like blood-based biomarkers and digital technologies, so we can recognize diseases earlier, monitor them more closely, and develop medicines to treat patients more effectively. Visit gene.com forward slash neuroscience to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash neuroscience. So this week, we got a little personnel news uh, in uh, Novartis's earnings. They announced they're hiring Sanford Bernstein analyst Ronnie Gao as chief strategy and growth officer. Um, this is kind of an interesting move. I mean, we see people move from the analyst side to the industry side all the time. But I don't know, this one kind of stuck out to us a little bit, Damien. How come? Yeah, I think Ronnie Gall has distinguished himself over uh, now two decades um, in as a sell side analyst, but in recent years as a pretty pointed critic of the companies that he covers, which is a, a difficult tightrope to walk, I think, for, for sell side analysts. We talked about this before, that they have kind of a complicated job in that the investors who or the clients basically of the banks they work for um, ostensibly want biting analyses of these companies, but they also want access to these companies and they want the analysts to facilitate that. And that creates, I mean, frankly, a conflict of interest for these people as they write their research notes. And I think Ronnie Gall has stood out, as I mentioned, for seeming a little more fearless than the average and and uh, pretty shrewd in terms of his commentary on drug price increases on really pricing in general, but on how companies approach their strategy. And so for Novartis to bring him in-house, it's kind of like, well, it's crass to say they're buying a critic, but but it's it's an interesting move for a massive drug company like that to see a guy who has occasionally, you know, thrown stones at the industry he covers and to, to bring him in. And this role, as you mentioned, sounds pretty broad based upon Novartis's characterization of it. He is basically in charge of, of strategy or advising the company on strategy, which they mentioned would have to do with, you know, prioritizing their pipeline, but also in choosing, helping choose what they buy. Novartis, a company famously with a lot of cash on its books right now. So I don't know, it's, it's interesting. It's like watching a guy who's had a lot of opinions from the peanut gallery now getting a seat at the table at this massive drug company. 
I have to say, when I heard about this, I was really bummed out just for personal reasons, because Ronnie, as you said, is one of those few people who will say the thing that most people won't say about what the industry is doing. He'll just sort of baldly state, you know, the the drug companies are doing this to raise prices and it'll be good for the stock. And, you know, most people won't really say that or they'll, they'll sort of couch it in language that isn't as plain spoken. And Ronnie has just been like an incredible person to put on camera to like say the things that the industry does. And now there's one fewer person like that. And I mean, I think, you know, David Maris was another sort of different vibe, but like he was an analyst for a long time um, who very much criticized the drug industry for a lot of the things they did. And he's not in that kind of role anymore either. Um, and so, you know, these these guys are kind of moving on into other things. I'm very interested to see what Ronnie does at Novartis. Um, but I'm sad that I won't get to use him as the, a source in the same way. So, Meg, let's uh, let's have another chat about COVID vaccines. Where are we, particularly when it comes to kids? <laughs> yeah, our never ending our ne- discussion. Exactly. Where are COVID vaccines for kids under five? Um, but that that question, you know, which we've talked about in the last couple podcasts, I think, you know, has, has really been snowballing. This week we saw uh, Representative James Clyburn send a letter to FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf asking for a staff briefing about what is going on with the vaccines because of the reporting that we saw last week started by Politico, which essentially put out there this idea that the FDA may hold off on reviewing Moderna's vaccine so it can do it in parallel with Pfizer's vaccine. Dr. Fauci kind of added some fuel to the fire and entered interview with Casey Hunt on CNN Plus um, last week. Um, unfortunately, I guess we won't be having CNN Plus around for much longer, but that was a very <laughs> impactful interview in this space um, where he essentially said, you know, they didn't want to cause confusion by putting out two different vaccines at the same time, but not adding a whole lot more clarity onto that. And so there's just a big question, which is also getting fueled by intense and coordinated advocacy from parents of kids under five. We talked about how uh, they dominated the public comment period at the CDC's ACIP meeting last week. Um, Clearly, it sounds like they are having an impact with Congress. They are calling Congress people's offices, um, trying to get them to um, take action. And now we are starting to see these kinds of letters. So the FDA has essentially said we should perhaps get a roadmap of the timing for the review over the next week or two. But the FDA does need to take time to actually review the applications. That's what they do. Um, And so that could end up working out around the same time. Um, But there is just there's a lot of frustration, understandably. There's, this has been delayed for so long for a number of reasons, expanding trials, but also the data not coming in where regulators wanted to see it. And guys, there's also speculation that when this goes to an outside advisory committee, it's not going to necessarily be a unanimous vote based on what we've seen of Moderna's data so far, because it was under the 50% vaccine efficacy threshold uh, with two doses. It was about 40% effective in preventing cases of COVID in the trial um, in an age of Omicron. That's essentially what we can expect with two doses. Um, But it's not going to be a clear path forward. And so um, parents are going to keep watching this really, really closely. But, you know, we all want a vaccine as soon as we can, but we want it to be safe and to work. So the other stalwart topic of this segment of the podcast beyond the COVID-19 pediatric vaccine saga is biotech stocks and specifically how they are bad and seem to just get worse. Adam, the industry crossed a threshold this week. Tell us about it. Yeah, before I get to that, I'll, I'll tell you. Maybe I'm maybe I'm sharing confidence this year, but uh, I think we all know Brad Longcar, biotech investor, and um, 
a guy on Twitter who's usually nicest fairly man in biotech, TM. nicest man in biotech, fairly sunny, optimistic guy. He he actually DM me the other day the you know like that sort of the vomit sad vomiting emoji <laughs> character. He 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 DM me that the other day just after another relentless day of selling uh, in biotech. And I think if it's getting to a guy like Brad Lonkar, it's it's getting to everybody, and you can kind of see that. I mean, it, the selling as you mentioned, Damien, has been unrelenting. Uh, you know, we, we follow the index called the XBI, and it, it did. It sort of hit this kind of bad milestone this week where it essentially it got down to the level of April, last seen April 2020. So basically what that's saying is like all of the kind of that enthusiasm and exuberance in biotech in the early days of the COVID pandemic where, you know, biotech and pharma were going to sort of save the world, that's all been erased out of the sector. Uh, and now we're sort of trading back as if like COVID didn't happen. Um, I will, I don't want to be completely depressing here. I will say that, uh, and we are going to be talking about NK cells therapy uh, later on in the podcast. And we'll be talking specifically about a company called Encarta. You know, they had some encouraging data this week for their NK, NK cell therapy. And the stock actually went up, <laughs> um, which we we are not seeing very much of these days. You know, like good clinical data leads to a rise in the stock price. They actually even, they raise money, but the stock kind of stayed up there. So like, maybe that's a sign that, you know, uh, that's a, a hopeful sign um, that we're not just seeing selling even when the, when the clinical news is positive. Yeah, and we are expecting another pretty big catalyst from a much bigger company fairly soon, Alnylam's data, in a disease called TTR amyloidosis. Um, I saw one analyst note that said the stock could go up 40% or down 50% based on these phase three results expected sometime around mid-year. Um, so whether or not that'll be a big catalyst for this space or not remains to be seen. But it seems to be we need clinical data. We need to see stocks reacting well when clinical trials succeed. And we might need to see M&A before sentiment really turns around for biotech, right? Yeah, exactly. And so far, you know, each aspect of that equation hasn't quite come together. Moving into 2022, biotech stocks were already down relative to where they had been. And there was this expectation that the combination of cash on the books of major pharma companies, biotech companies with promising assets who were slipping below maybe fair valuations was a recipe for, you know, a lot of M&A that would turn sentiment around and it just hasn't materialized. So I don't know which of those ingredients has to come first to set like a positive feedback loop in motion, but everybody's still waiting. There was some early but encouraging clinical trial news this week from a small biotech that's developing a relatively new form of cancer immunotherapy made from natural killer cells. Adam, you wrote a story about the new data. Tell us about it. Yeah, Meg, the company is called Encarta. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's developing therapies that start with natural killer cells, uh, often referred to as NK cells. These are a type of immune cell generally thought of as the body's first line of defense against foreign invaders. Now, on Monday, Encarta announced preliminary results from two studies in which it engineered NK cell treatments induce complete responses in patients with advanced forms of blood cancer. Of the two studies, the one involving patients with advanced acute myeloid leukemia 
garnered the most attention. There, three of five patients treated with the highest dose of these NCARTA NK cells achieved complete remissions, and two of those patients showed no evidence of residual disease. So again, these are small numbers of patients, but essentially those patients got the best response possible. Um, now, both of the companies engineered NK cell therapies were well tolerated by patients and with no reports of serious immune system or neurological side effects that are commonly experienced by cancer patients who undergo treatments with CAR-T therapies. Right. And I think CAR-T is a good like auguring basis because I think most of our listeners are familiar with these treatments, which use genetically modified T cells to target and kill cancers. So how are NK cell therapies different from the CAR-Ts that we've come to know so well? Yeah, Damien, you know, the biggest difference is really the starting material. Uh, as the name implies, CAR-T therapies are made from engineered T cells. But scientists have learned that NK cells can also be genetically engineered, meaning that like armaments and enhancements can be made to these cells in the lab to help them better find and kill cancer cells. Uh, you know, at least for now, CAR T therapies are bespoke, which uh, which means you know they're custom made for each patient. Those are personalized treatments. The NK cell treatments being developed, in contrast, are allogeneic or off the shelf. They can be mass-produced uh, and infused into any patient on demand. So joining us now to help us better understand the role that NK cells might play in the future of cancer treatments is Dr. Katie Resvani, a stem cell transplant physician and NK cell research scientist at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Resvani, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you. It's great to be here. So maybe a natural place to start is with the name. Uh, natural killer cells. The killer part, I think I understand, fairly self-explanatory, but what do we mean by natural in this sense? Well, I think Adam did a great job of actually introducing what natural killer cells are. And, and natural killer cells are part of our innate immune system. So unlike T and B cells that are part of the adaptive immune system, cells of the innate immune system are the first line of defense. They include NK cells, they include macrophages, dendritic cells, neutrophils, etc. And these cells of the innate immune system recognize abnormal cells such as cancer cells and viruses very rapidly and are capable of mediating a very strong response against those. And uh, they, they can kill virally infected cells and cancer cells even before the, the, the T cells or B cells have become educated to recognize them. So they, it's like they have this natural immunity and natural response against many of these uh, abnormal cells. Is there something different about NK cells that makes it um, so that they can be more easily used off the shelf. Um, it seems like, you know, we have to, CAR-T right now, you're taking a patient's own cells and genetically modifying them and then giving them back. Is it more difficult to use a donor's T cells and why? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, because NK cells do not express T cell receptor on their surface, they they do not cause graft versus host disease. So actually, if you take NK cells from one person and took it, put it into another person, you're not going to get, you're not going to cause graft versus host disease, even if those two individuals are completely HLA mismatched. T cells, on the other hand, unless they are fully matched at all HLA molecules, they will cause 
graft versus host disease. And we see that in the setting of allergenic stem cell transplant. For instance, when we do an allergenic stem cell transplant, we have to make sure the donor and the recipient are fully HLA matched. Um, if they're mismatched, we have to give a lot more immunosuppressants to prevent the graft versus host disease effect. With NK cells, you don't have to worry about any of that. And, and, and this is really because the T cell receptor is capable of detecting um, incompatibilities and mismatches in HLA molecules, uh, which is the main uh, mechanism behind graft versus host disease. So this is one reason why um, a number of groups, including ours, became interested in using in case as, as a source of, um, as an off-the-shelf source of cells for immunotherapy. The other advantage of NK cells um, is what I kind of alluded to earlier, that they have these receptors on their surface that are germline encoded, and the job of these receptors is to recognize uh, stressed um stressed cells, such as cancer cells or virally infected cells. So through these receptors, in cases are already um, capable of recognizing cancer cells, then when you take the, the your NK cell and then on top of it, engineer them to express the car, in a way you have multiple mechanisms through which your NK cell can recognize the tumor cell. So zooming out for maybe a, a pretty basic question, where do researchers get the NK cells needed to make these therapies? Yeah, that's a great question. So currently, multiple different sources of NK cells are being used for um, South Air, for, for NK cell manufacturing and engineering. So, you know, everyone pretty much has got their own favorite uh, cell source of uh, NK cells. We use umbilical cord blood. Um, um, a number of um, different investigators and companies like Fate Therapeutics, for instance, they use uh, induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs to manufacture their um, NK cells. And Carter use peripheral blood as a source of NK cells for their um, car engineering approach. Um, so um, obviously peripheral blood already contains mature NK cells, which is what um, was used for with Encarta. Umbilical cord blood, which is what we use, um, already has NK cells in there. And all we are doing is isolating the NK cells from umbilical cord blood, which is a byproduct of, of, of birth and donated uh, to us by mothers after they give birth to their babies. And, and it's, it's a rich source of um, natural killer cells. So we can isolate those NK cells and expand them for our manufacturing. With induced pluripotent stem cells, there is a, there is a, a, a step of obviously diff, diff, de differentiating the, 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 the initial um, source of iPSCs into stem cells and then taking those stem cells to then uh, differentiate them into natural killer cells. Each of these have their own advantages and disadvantages. I think what we can say based on the data from our group, from FATE, from um, Encarta and from others is that in case cells from any source tested to date have been shown to be safe and uh, with, with uh, at least a, a, a promising signal of efficacy. One other source of NK cells that I didn't mention is NK cells that are derived from um, 
uh, NK-cell lines. And these are NK-cell lines that were made from actually a patient with NK-cell lymphoma, where the cells were, were um, turned into a line and immortalized. And those are also being used for um, engineering. Um, there, the problem is that because they, uh, they were derived from a patient with, with um, NK-cell lymphoma, and you're going to be infusing them into uh, an individual that is obviously immunosuppressive, given them chemotherapy, etc., you would want to make sure that the, the cell doesn't engraft and cause NK-cell lymphoma. So the cell lines will have to be irradiated. The development of NK cell immunotherapy is still relatively young, but a lot of people cite a paper that you co-authored in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2020 as early proof of concept for the field. Can you tell us what that paper showed? Yeah, so that was the phase one portion of a trial that was an investigator-initiated study at MD Anderson where we took cord blood-derived um, natural killer cells and we engineered them to express a car targeting the CD19 antigen in order to help with the persistence of the natural killer cells the, the, our construct also included a cytokine gene that, that, um, um, encoded for the release of a growth factor called interleukin 15 that allowed for the longer persistence and the proliferation of our cells. And it also included a safety switch based on a molecule called inducible caspase 9 um, in, in the event of toxicity. So at the time, this was a first in human study and we were, we didn't know what kind of safety profile we were going to see. That's why the safety switch was important for us to, to include. In that phase, phase one study, which was dose escalation, we reported and included patients with um, non-Hodgkin lymphoma and patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. We reported a remission rate of seven out of 11, and all of these were complete responses. We didn't see any evidence of toxicity. There was no cytokine release syndrome, no neurotoxicity, and importantly, Despite the fact that our NK cells were either partially mismatched or fully mismatched with the recipient, we didn't see any graft versus host disease in our patients. The trial allowed for the patients, once they achieve a remission, to receive consolidation either with a transplant or additional drugs. Because again, at the time, this was first in human, the patients were very poor risk, multiple, multiply relapse. And we wanted to make sure that, um, you know, if they, if they achieve a remission, uh, that, that we do the, the, the best we can to keep them in remission. So the, the patients did receive consolidation. For the phase two portion of the study, though, that we are currently working on analyzing the data, and I'm hoping that soon we will be able to present um, uh, the data at meetings, um, we didn't allow for um, consolidation specifically to look at the persistence of the response. So one of the things you mentioned earlier um, is the the durability question. That was just for one of the types of cells, but um, or, or sources of cells. But that seems to be a bigger question for NK cells uh, generally. What what do we know about how long um, they should last, and um, whether you know redosing is something that might happen and might help? Um, mature NK cells, mature conventional NK cells, only have a lifespan of a couple of weeks. Now, 
Various groups, including ours, are looking at different ways of prolonging the, the, the persistence of the NK cells. So you can um, engineer them to express a cytokine gene like IL-15, which we've done, and CARTO's done, Fate Therapeutics uh, have done. You could you could do a, a, a different approach, which, which is what we did with our AFM-13 NK study, where instead of engineering the cells, we preactivated them with a cocktail of inflammatory cytokines, which included interleukin 12, 15, and 18 to induce a memory-like phenotype. And this is from work that has been done by various in- investigators for the last two decades, really showing that, um, you know, in cases in the right inflammatory environment can acquire a longer persistence and, and a memory response. So, there is data now coming out that NKSAS could become long-lived if you obviously um, culture them in the in the right environment and engineer them in the in in the in a, in a certain way. Now, your, your your question also I think is very important because there's also the persistence of um, of the response that at the end of the day, as clinicians, that's what we're most um, um, focused on. So from our New England Journal paper, you know, we couldn't really comment much in terms of the persistence of the response, as I mentioned, is because um, the, 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 the patients receive consolidation. What I'm very excited about is the data with AFM-13 in case study. So that data was presented at AACR and uh, um, we we saw responses in 17 of 19 patients, and um, we we did have complete responses. Um, about 10 patients had complete remission. Again, that trial allowed for patients who were transplant eligible to to have a transplant because again, as physicians, we thought that was the ethical thing to do. Transplant is curative for. Uh, relapsed Hodgkin lymphoma, but there were a handful of patients. There were five patients who had already progressed after a transplant, so we couldn't really do another transplant in those. So those patients were just followed. There was nothing else that we gave to those patients. Those five patients, two of them now are 11 months after receiving their AFM-13 NK therapy, and they're still in complete remission without consolidation. And there are three other patients that are around, I would say, four, five, and six months after receiving AFM-13 and K-therapy. And again, those patients are still in remission. And that was Dr. Nieto had that in the swim, swim, swimmer plot um, slide that he, he presented. So, you know, that to us at least gave a clue that there are patients that could potentially get long-term remission. I don't want to use the word cure because this is, you know, 11 months is not long enough and the numbers are are small. But we are encouraged by these data. And uh, the other thing we learned from the AFM-13 in case study was that we can give multiple cycles of treatment because in the AFM-13 in case study, we, we were allowed to give a second cycle of lymphoid depletion followed by AFM-13 in case cells and followed by the AFM-13 infusion. And what we found is that patients that after cycle one had gone into, a, had achieved a partial remission could be pushed into a complete remission with cycle two. So actually you can, you can, um, 
you can deepen the response. And now we've gone to the FDA and, and, uh, and asked permission and they've granted that, that we, we can now give four cycles of this therapy. Again, with the idea that maybe, you know what, you don't need, um, one infusion to persist forever. Maybe what we need is this area under the curve of repeated infusions so that you have sufficient numbers of NK cells for long enough to go and uh, target the tumor and eradicate it. And it's interesting because Encarta also found that the best responses that they had observed was with their highest dose where they had given three doses of the, of the um, NK cells. Dr. Rizvani, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which emoji you would use to describe the state of biotechnology market. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.